Good morning, Calvary. It's great to be here for Iron Sharpens Iron this morning. There was a joke. There was a joke. That's a men's conference, okay? It was a joke. Didn't go over as well as I'd hoped. No, good morning. Uh, as Dave said, both Dave's said, my name's Brad. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm now at the Way Church in Vancouver. I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful daughter who weren't able to be here today. Uh, my daughter is almost a year and a half old. We had the privilege of having her dedicated last week. And, uh, oh, we're early. Okay, there you go. Um, we had the privilege of having her dedicated last week. And uh, just a little glimpse into who she is, uh, since you can't meet her this morning. Her favorite part of the ceremony by a mile was to discover that her picture was up on this big screen twice. And uh, she made it very clear she thought that was awesome. So uh, that's my daughter. Uh, it's so good to be here, Calvary, and, and I really mean that. Uh, Calvary runs quite deep in my blood. Uh, as many of you know, my uncle Todd was a pastor here for a long time, and I'm sure many of you were blessed by his ministry here. And now, in, in Dave, you've brought in someone to be your pastor who has been a very dear friend and mentor for me for years. Um, so needless to say, I, I honor where you've been as a church and I'm very, very excited to see where God's going to bring you in the years that are to come. This morning, we're going to talk about unity as followers of Jesus. Unity as followers of Jesus. And it, and it feels appropriate for me to come in and bring this word to Calvary. Like I said, my, my uncle Todd was a pastor here for a lot of years. And all of my childhood memories of Christmas look pretty much the same. Christmas Eve was always, you know, we would have our Christmas Eve service at our church down the road. And then as soon as it was done, we would rush as a family over to Calvary to make it here in time to catch Calvary's Christmas Eve service before heading back for our family time together. So we, we'd rush over here and, and I'd get to hear my grandma play the piano here at Calvary and hear Pastor Dave Barker bring a phenomenal word as he seemed to always do. And I loved being here for those services. They were just a part of Christmas for me and my family. They were a part of what Christmas was for me. And so in light of our topic this morning, I can say that I'm really grateful to Calvary, actually, for playing a huge part in ingraining into me a sense of unity and collectivity in the community of saints, from church to church of celebrating joyfully together the commonalities of the way of Jesus. I'm very grateful to Calvary for ingraining that in me from a young age. And so I'm excited to be here and excited to press in with our text this morning as we continue in the series that you've been in as a church in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading for us from verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul writes this, Philippians 1, 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, 
since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in, his, in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So, to set our trajectory up front for this morning, we're going to spend almost all of our time together in those first four verses in Philippians chapter 2. They're going to kind of form the meat of the meal of our time together our fine meal today. Just for the sake of time, we can't necessarily mine the depths of all that's in those texts, or else I'll garner the same reputation for myself here as I have earned elsewhere, and we wouldn't want that this morning. So we'll spend almost all of our time this morning in the beginning of chapter two. However, before we get there, I need to acknowledge that Paul actually flashes at the end of chapter one what may just be his thesis statement for the entire book of Philippians. Now, I know that's a bold, audacious claim to make when you come in as a guest preacher in the middle of a series. But I'm telling you, Paul may just flash his thesis statement for the entire book of Philippians, late in chapter 1, when he says, with that first verse that I read for us this morning, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a word. What a word. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could argue that this is really the heartbeat of all of the New Testament epistles. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But it certainly is for this letter to the Philippians. This is the exhortation to rule all exhortations. Daryl Johnson describes this exhortation as the driving force of this whole letter the driving force of the whole letter. This is what carries the letter forward everywhere else. And the exhortation in verse 27 there begins with the words in our translation, the NIV, whatever happens, whatever happens. But this word that's translated as whatever happens in Greek is actually the Greek word monos, and it's actually better translated as only or merely. Only And so to continue with Daryl Johnson's thought on this, he, he works off this translation when he writes about this verse and he says this about this exhortation. He says, by putting only at the beginning of the sentence, Paul is saying in effect, let me get to the major reason I am writing. Only. If the Philippians will do this one thing, this only, they will move forward in the will of Jesus for his church. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if you do things like this, write that down. Write that down on notes, note cards. Tape it everywhere in your home where you might see it on a regular basis. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Write it on a note card. Tape it on your bathroom mirror first thing you see in the morning. Tape it on your dashboard of your car for your drive to... Oh, that's a bad idea, actually. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> It's a driving force for anything and everything else that we do in our lives as followers of Jesus. 
Live as citizens of the gospel, striving together as one in the name of Jesus. So then the whole rest of this letter to the Philippians is really just a breaking out of what that actually looks like. And it is with that context in mind that we arrive at what immediately follows in chapter 2, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, with the first four verses of chapter 2. Now, a little bit more about me to help you kind of get a sense of who I am. I am I'm currently finishing up a master's degree. I'm mostly doing that just so I can finally be at Dave's level. I've been working for years, hoping to finally arrive there someday. But as a grad school student, I love to write. And I know I'm, I'm a little bit weird in this, but I love to write. I love writing papers. I know, I know the groans emerge in the room. No, I love writing papers. But I am, I must admit, I'm one of those people who like way overuses commas. <laughs> and I can end up getting to like the end of a paragraph and looking back and realizing that I'm eight lines in and still working on my first sentence. <laughs> and I don't know, if any, can anyone else in the room relate to me in this? It's, you're among friends, no shame. Keep your hands up, okay? Keep your hands. I have good news for those of you in the room who raised your hands. See, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 to imitate him, so really all we're doing is just following Paul's teachings better than everyone else. Which is obviously a joke, but, but in reality, Paul, if you haven't noticed yet in Philippians, is, is literally the all-time king of the run-on sentence. The all-time king of the run-on. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians. It will become abundantly clear. But the beginning of chapter 2 here in Philippians 2 Believe it or not, these first four verses is actually one big run-on sentence. It's actually said to be the longest run-on sentence in the New Testament, coming in at 82 words in the original Koine Greek. 82 words. Even I'm impressed with that. And this would be difficult enough to track with if it weren't for a few other factors that are thrown in the mix as well. So Paul would have written this letter on papyrus, which was basically an ancient form of paper made from reeds pressed together. The important thing with that is papyrus was expensive. And Paul was an itinerant preacher. Not exactly a lot of disposable income. So the common practice to conserve papyrus and therefore to conserve money was to try to cram as many words as possible into one page. But it didn't stop there. So you're trying to cram all these words onto one page. The tactics didn't stop there. They would try all other kinds of tactics to conserve space. These included getting rid of any and all punctuation. So you've got this crammed full page of all these letters and words. There are no commas, no periods, no dashes, no semicolons. In fact, there are no spaces. There are no spaces. So you have this crammed full papyrus full of letters that form this web you're trying to untangle, and maybe this gives you a little sense this morning of how technical a task Bible translation really is and why we have so many English versions today. But I promise I'm going somewhere with this. It's not just intro to Bible 101 this morning. In the process of trying to do this difficult work of, of untangling this web of letters to make a coherent translation that makes sense, I would say that almost all modern translations actually mask the fact in this particular paragraph 
that in the original language, this entire paragraph that marks the first four verses of chapter two only has one singular verb. There is one verb in this text to begin chapter two. One verb, one action word. In our translation in the NIV, there are a bunch of verbs, and we see that in there. But in the original text, there's just one. And it's right in the middle of this four-verse chunk at the beginning of chapter 2. And it's in verse 2, where Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. So make my joy complete is the one verb or the one command in the entirety of that long, run-on, complex sentence at the beginning of chapter 2. It seems like it must be something kind of important. Now, as you, you already know from being a few weeks into your series on Philippians, joy, the idea of joy is a fundamentally important idea in this letter of Paul. I saw that your tagline for your series is joy amidst adversity. And, and I, I love that. That's so good. And the Greek word for joy here is kara. And you may know this already, but Paul uses kara 16 times throughout this short letter. It is all over. It is an undercurrent that runs all throughout Philippians. But the verb here, the, the one verb in this text that the NIV translates as make my joy complete, is this verb playru in the Greek. And it, if it's a helpful picture for you, it can also be translated as fill up my joy to overflowing, which I love. I love that word picture. Fill up my joy to overflowing. Make my joy complete or fill up my joy to overflowing is the fulcrum point of this whole paragraph, of this whole run-on sentence. It is the hinge moment in this text this morning. And it's this hinge moment because everything that comes before it in the first couple verses of Philippians 2, everything that comes before this command to make my joy complete is the why. It's the why. And everything that comes after this command to make my joy complete is the how. So it breaks up quite nicely in that way. So before this command, everything in the paragraph is the why. So for those of you who were those kids that always ask their parents everything, mommy, daddy, why? This will feed your soul, this part of the, this part of the text. I'm frankly terrified that my daughter's gonna be one of those kids, just sidebar, but I know we probably have it coming and deserve everything we get. <laughs> but then after this verb, after the make my joy complete, from verse two on is the how. How do we do that? The practical implementation. Here's how you complete my joy by being like-minded. Here's the nuts and bolts of it for your daily life. And so as we press into this this morning, I'm going to do something somewhat unorthodox, and I'm going to have us look at that second piece first. I'm going to have us look at the how first before we finish our time this morning with the why, and I, I trust that will make sense as we go. But Paul says, make my joy complete, fill up my joy to overflowing by being like-minded. And what's the how? Well, the how, Paul runs through this list of the how, and he goes quite quickly through it. And he starts out, he starts out, how? How do you make my joy complete? By having the same love. He starts out with by having the same love. I mean, love's always the first one on the list, am I right? 
Love's always the first one on the list. If you're here this morning and you're new to church, I can give you a word, a word to the wise, answering Jesus or love to any rhetorical question given from the front will always stand you in good stead. It will get you good results. So Jesus and love can never be wrong, am I right? They can never be wrong. Certainly not when Jesus says in John 15, he says, my one command is that you would love one another. Jesus boils it all down to love. Having the same love. Make my joy complete by having the same love. And the next one that he says is by being one in spirit and of one mind. Now this literally means translated thinking the exact same thing. One in thinking and in feeling. Paul envisions a church that is like-minded. One in thinking and in feeling, on the same page. But we all know that that's not realistic, right? We all know we go to church and there are some people in the room that think mighty differently than I do. We're becoming more and more aware of this by the week. But Paul envisions a church that is one in thinking and feeling. And what that means is focused on the one thing. Focused on the one thing. And that would be love and Jesus. Just, again, bring us back to that. So one in mind and in spirit. Then Paul gets really direct with the how. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition. Doing what it takes to get ahead. You know those people, you know those people who always have to be the center of attention? You know, who always have to be on the stage with a microphone, under the lights? You know, those people. (laughs) Really glad, pray for those people. I'm glad I'm not one of them. No, there's something in us as human beings that makes us want to get ahead, am I right? Just, if you, if you need to be convinced of this, just think for a second about how you feel, like your knee-jerk reaction before you have time to sift it through your heart, your knee-jerk reaction when someone around you, maybe it's a boss or a coworker or a neighbor or someone around you gets a promotion or gets praise or whatever it is, does it ever make you kind of mad? Or like a little tinge of envy, like a little tinge of jealousy? Oh, just me? Okay, cool, cool. Thanks for the encouragement, guys. No, there's something in us as humans, we want to get ahead. And even if that means we have to step on a few people or or cut a few corners along the way. You know, selfish ambition. Or Paul goes on, vain conceit. The word vain actually means empty. Basically, what he's saying is you have nothing to brag about. Vain conceit. And we, and we know it. Don't we know it? But then we're insecure, so we do it all the more. Vain conceit. When you see someone, here's a good example of how this plays out. When you see someone that you haven't seen in a bit, and you, and you begin a conversation, and obviously you ask, oh, how are you doing? Or how have you been? How have you been? What's the most likely answer you're going to receive other than good? Fine. Okay, so it's like synonyms. But what, what might be another answer that you might receive? Okay. I I would contend, and maybe you can agree or disagree with this, busy, that's it, that's it. Man, it's like Dave read my notes or something. (laughs) Busy. Don't don't we all say that? Oh, how have you been? Ah, good, it's been been busy. It's been a busy season. Whether it has been or not, 
I, I found COVID to be a hilarious case study in this personally because COVID hit and literally no one was busy anymore. <laughs> and yet we still, we still used it. We still relied on it. And it's like, really? Like, I know that's not true. We were forced to try to find all these other things to say. And, and you know, now we're back to busy. But busy, we say that and we rely on that and we kind of like fall back on busy because busy in our modern translation kind of means important, or at least in our minds it does. Important, got a lot of things going on. I needed a lot of places. We like to make it seem like we're more important than we are, or at least than others are. And Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, this one's really important, and I think we need to understand something that Paul's not saying here. Paul is not saying, think of other people as better than you. It's not this, oh, so-and-so, so-and-so is just better than me. I suck. You know, Dave Heinrichs, man, he's just, he's just better than me. You're not, by the way. Um, it's okay, we have that kind of relationship, I promise. No, Paul's not saying to live with this sad resignation that everyone around you is just better than you. What he's saying is, he's saying put others' needs ahead of your own. Value others as more important than yourself. You know what? Dave is not better than me, and don't you forget it. But Dave's needs are more important than my own. I'm called to put Dave's needs ahead of my own. And wow, I am not very good at that. I'm not very good at that. And our culture in our glorification of self-actualization and the freedom of the individual autonomy, this isn't even a value anymore. We need to relearn to even value this in our cultural moment. But that's what Paul means. Paul means put the needs, your spouse's needs ahead of your own. Put your children's needs ahead of your own. Kids, put your parents' needs ahead of your own. Families, put the gospel's needs ahead of your own. Put your friends and family members who don't know Jesus' needs ahead of your own. Put your neighborhood's needs ahead of your own. Value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's really a radically others-centered way of life that Paul calls us to, to complete his joy. Radically reorienting the cultural narrative that we live and breathe in a city like ours. So that's the quick run-through of the laundry list of the how. Complete my joy. Bring my joy to overflowing. How? There's the quick laundry list that we just flew through there of what Paul says. But really what I think we can see when we, when we take a step back and look at it as kind of an overarching umbrella, I think what we can see is that it boils down here to the idea of unity. Unity. Ever elusive unity. Living worthy of the gospel of Christ, as he said in verse 27 of chapter 1 means living in unity, living together in harmony, moving in the same direction, united in spirit and in mind. But something that's important to clarify 
is that Paul's call to unity does not mean uniformity. Paul's call to unity does not mean uniformity. It does not mean making carbon copy disciples. It does not mean institutional sameness. I love the way that Daryl Johnson describes reasons for this. He says, for one thing, we humans are far too wonderfully diverse for uniformity. For another, this is beautiful, no one way of being disciples of Jesus can possibly manifest his multifaceted glory. I love that. I love that. Like I said, I have, a, I have a daughter who's almost a year and a half old, and I think she is just the most beautiful little girl on the planet. You can put the picture of her up again. It's just the most beautiful little girl on the planet, and she is absolutely like a combination of, of my wife and I. She has, totally has traits from both of us, but very clearly she has her mom's eyes, and I, I'm so glad. She has these big, beautiful blue eyes that she gets from her mom. Unfortunately, my daughter didn't get my curly afro. She did not get my hair. I really, really wanted my, ch my children to get my hair. I wanted the big curly afro because it's just fun. And so my daughter is obviously gorgeous and so incredibly cute. But all that to say, I hope that if we are blessed to have another kid or two, at some point down the line, one of my kids gets to inherit the curly afro that I had to live with. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, I hope that all our kids don't look exactly the same. And that's not because my daughter's not gorgeous and beautiful, but it's because I hope that some other attributes get to be displayed through the next, and Lord willing, the next. And all that to say, our diversity in the way of Jesus is not a problem. It represents the beautiful, multifaceted glory of God on display through diversity in his church. We see his attributes on display, like we might see our genes on display in our children. So if unity does not mean uniformity, how do we know what it does mean? Well, I contend how we know what it does mean is by reading this section of Scripture, by reading Philippians 2, 1 to 4, in the context of the whole letter of Philippians. The first, the first word of chapter 2 that we read this morning is, therefore, therefore, if you have any encouragement, etc., etc. And which always means, whenever you see therefore, it always means we need to look back at what has come before to understand the context of what's going on here. So for us to understand the context for this unity that's being presented by Paul, we need to go back to what is said immediately before. And what did I say at the beginning of our time this morning was the driving force of this whole letter. The driving force of this whole letter, which came immediately before this chunk of text at the beginning of chapter 2, only live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live as citizens of the gospel, striving together as one in the name of Jesus. Making the first things the first things. See, unity is not the main thing. Unity is a means to an end. The aim is the gospel of Jesus. The aim is, as a church, to live out the gospel, and Paul is ever so aware that you need to stay unified for that to happen. 
That's the point. The point is the gospel of Jesus and unity a necessary means to living that out. We have a real tendency to rally around preferences. The church in our moment has such a tendency to come together around all kinds of preferences, around a, a personality or a teacher or a worship leader or to come, to come together around a building or a style of music or a demographic or more and more recently around a political stance or whatever it might be. We have a real tendency to rally around preferences. But as we've seen far too many times in recent years, if preferences are the glue that are holding a church together, it is only a matter of time before that church falls to pieces. It is only a matter of time. Whatever happens when that personality moves on or when there's a new show in town or when a truth comes to light about something that was really going on, it is only a matter of time. But if and when the church comes together around the gospel of Jesus, not around a personality or a teacher or a worship leader or a building or whatever, but around the gospel of Jesus and faithfully living it together, when the main thing is, listen, I'm here for the gospel of Jesus. I'm in all the way. I jumped in the deep end and every inch of my life is saturated with the good news of the kingdom of God in the here and now. In every single one of the moments of my day, in every single one of the relationships in my life, I'm here for the mission. I'm here to live it out. I'm here all in for the gospel. When that is the glue, when that is the mission, that church will stand the test of time. It isn't about uniformity. It isn't even about unity. It is about the gospel of Christ. And our unity and harmony are a vital means to that end. Many have put it this way, and I think it's a really helpful picture. The gospel has the power to pull us together into a symphony. But members of a symphony don't all play the same instrument. Nor do the members of a symphony all play the same note. Most importantly, actually, they don't even play their own compositions. What they do is they play the same musical score under the direction of the same conductor. The result is not unison, but harmony. And it is ultimately, friends, this conductor, the author of this musical score, who at the very core of his being depicts for us the beautiful, life-giving picture of self-giving unity. And it is this conductor, the author and perfecter of this gospel, the author and perfecter of our faith, who presents us with the why of our unity. The why. The why of the one command in this paragraph in chapter two. The why of complete my joy, fill my joy to overflowing by being like-minded. Why? Because the one who has called us to himself is one, is unity. See, Paul does this super cool thing at the beginning of chapter two that he does all through his writings in the New Testament and that is he makes reference to the Trinity, God in three persons, without ever actually using that language. 
And he does it at the beginning of our text here in, in Philippians 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. So he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, with Jesus, the Son, he says, if you have any comfort from his love, now the his there in the English translation is not actually there in the Greek. It's been added there, and that's because most scholars agree that it's referring to the love of the Father. The love of the Father. And then he says, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this isn't an accident. Paul doesn't do this by happy coincidence. Paul does this very intentionally. See, the, the why of our unity, the why of being like-minded, of having the same love, the list goes on and on. The why of the list is because at the very core of who our God is, in his essence, the triune God of grace is one. Trinity within unity. Our God is the beautiful divine paradox of being three in one. Three persons eternally existing in mutuality, in harmony, in love, and in union. That's why when John writes in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love, he doesn't write that God is loving like it's some side attribute of his character, but that God is love at the very foundational and formative core of his being, of who he is and how he is. God is love. In the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that all of the Israelites would have had committed to memory. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And John writes in 1 John 4, God is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And friends, a disunited Jesus community does not reflect the essential character of its Lord. That's really important, so I'm going to repeat it. A disunited Jesus community does not reflect the essential character of its Lord. Jesus in John 17 famously is praying to his Father, praying for the church that would follow him, his high priestly prayer. And he prays for us that they may be one, even as you and I are one. He prays this to his Father. Michael Reeves in his little book, Delighting in the Trinity, writes, As the Father, Son, and Spirit have always known fellowship with each other, so we in the image of God are made for fellowship, made for unity. A disunited Jesus community does not reflect the essential character of its Lord. So Calvary, this morning I ask some tough questions. In what ways have we, Calvary, lost sight of the gospel for the sake of preferences? In what ways, friends, have you lost sight of counting others more important for yourself in this, in, for the sake of vain conceit? In what ways have you lost sight of valuing the needs of others before your own for the sake of selfish ambition? And how might we need to repent of these things and make them right. 
Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to finish with just one more quote from Daryl Johnson because he's just that much more brilliant than I am. He says this, what Paul is calling us to and what Jesus is praying us into is harmony. Living in harmony with each other's unique experience of and expressions of Jesus. Working together in different ways toward the same goal, the glory of God and the transformation of the world. That is our goal. That is our mission. May we pursue harmony in the pursuit of that mission. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, that you at your very being, God, give us an example of the beauty of, the beauty of unity and harmony that you eternally existed, Lord, as three in one, as three persons in one essence, that you eternally existed in this beautiful triune picture of divine love. And as an overflow of that love, you created us that we might join in. And God, I pray this morning that we might reflect your love to one another. That we might keep the first things the first things. That we might press forward eyes set purely and fixatedly on the prize, on the goal, and that is your good news, your gospel, Jesus, being proclaimed to this world through our love, through our unity. God, may we press forward, all in, all consumed for your gospel, Jesus. And may as a necessary outflow of that, May we be one even as you, God, are one. All for your glory. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.